Welcome to It's Not Allowed, a podcast, a collection of discussions with individuals who have taken a slightly different route to achieve their goals. I'm your co-host, Kevin. And I'm your co-host, Alice. We hope you enjoy the conversation. Hi, welcome to our fourth episode of It's Not Allowed, a podcast. Today, we're talking with Brandon Howe, a recent Bachelor of Arts graduate from the University of Melbourne. Brandon is currently working as a data analyst in the Australian Department of Health. Thank you, Brandon, for joining us today. Brandon, before we get into the questions, um, the meat of it, our tradition here is to ask two introductory questions. If you could travel anywhere in the world that isn't your hometown, where would you go and why? Mm. Very good question. And thanks for the introduction, Kevin. I, if I have to travel somewhere that's not my hometown, I know with the current political circumstances, it may be a bit controversial. I would love to go to Russia. Reason being, there are a lot of authors and musicians who I really respect. My, my, I play violin. I'm a classical musician. My favorite composer is Tchaikovsky. He's Russian. And some of my favorite authors, like Dostoevsky, is also Russian. So if I were able to travel anywhere, I would like to go to Russia and I love the snow as well. But understanding current circumstances are a bit tenuous at the moment. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, Russia seems like a beautiful place. And yeah, unfortunately, with the political situation, it's a bit difficult to move through. But hopefully, when that passes, you have an opportunity to visit. Uh, Brennan, could you give us just a really high-level overview of your mm-hmm. journey from starting university to where you are now working for the Department of Health? Yeah, no problem. So, uh, as you said, I studied an arts degree. I majored in psychology and philosophy. So, part, I always jokingly say that psychology for the job and philosophy for the fun. Uh, so I wanted to become a clinical psychologist, which is what most people major who majored in psychology wanted to do. So at the end of my, near the end of my degree, I applied for honours, which is a prerequisite to become a clinical psychologist. And I, at the same time, I also thought, ah, oh, I'm at the end of my degree and lots of people in who study arts also apply for lots of governmental graduate programs. So I thought, what's the harm in me applying for one of them? So I applied, ended up applying for the Victorian graduate program and the department, the Federal Department of Health graduate program, which is because I was really interested in health and healthcare. That's one of my passions. That's why I wanted to become a psychologist. And then I initially only put in an application for, for mostly for the fun of it. But as I got through more and more stages, I started taking more seriously as a really, a thing that I can really do and go to and pursue and I tried harder and prepared a lot more for the interviews and the stages. And I was eventually given an offer. So I went up to, and I went up to Canberra last year, beginning 2021 for the grad program and finished the grad program in the end of December in 21. And I decided to stay there for a few more years. And I guess I'm still up in Canberra in 22. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. Firstly, that you did sort of psychology and philosophy. And I like the way you put it. Um, but it's almost like a little bit of science or health and then the rest of it, like you said, traditional arts. But then also that divergence between wanting to become a clinical psychologist and also working yeah. for the DOH, which we'll hopefully explore a little bit further. But before we get to that stage, if I can take you all the way back to high school, mm-hmm. um, if you could just give us an idea what process you went through when you were choosing your Bachelor of Arts, and did you have any key questions, considerations that you can remember that was bogging your mind? Yeah, that's a very good question, Kevin. When I look back in my high school now, I... Choosing an arts degree was actually a last-minute decision. <laughs> so all throughout high school, I uh, wanted to do biomed, biomedicine, because I was really interested in healthcare. I was particularly interested in diseases, especially tra- um, communicable diseases like viruses and viral infections, 
that can be passed on between people. So that's what I thought I would do for 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 uni. So I studied sciences all throughout uni, uh, all throughout high school. I ended up doing university chemistry in at high school as well because I was really interested in the area. <laughs> but then I suppose for in in a series of personal um, life events, twists and turns, which made me really question mm, the intrinsic meaning in life. So what is the meaning of life? What became the key question in my in my high, in my late high school years from mid year twelve onwards through a series of personal circumstances, which lead me to investigate a lot of uh, about uh, faith, religion, philosophy, and psychology. And I went to a school which had a Christian background and I chatted to lots of different people about it. And I eventually wanted to, I wanted to pursue this topic further. So I studied an arts degree which allowed me to major in both psychology and philosophy. And that's why I didn't study a science degree, which also offered a psychology major. That's why I studied an arts degree for, in philosophy and psychology, because I wanted, at that time, I wanted also to find out the meaning of life was my fundamental priority in life. And then I was also became more aware of the mental importance of mental health. And that's why I studied, pursued psychology and philosophy, to study mental health and to find out what the heck the meaning of life is. Yeah, that's really interesting. It seems like you start thinking about these a bit earlier than I guess your um, the average generation. And, and it's also really interesting how much that influenced your later course degree selection mm -hmm. and then how you really want to use some sort of formalized education to inform your thinking rather than mm -hmm. all the different things you were on the website. That's really interesting. So it, it does seem like, I guess you said it's a last minute degree, but then now you reflect back, you really thought about what you want out of university, I guess, what outcomes you want to achieve. I guess mm. if Brandon, when you came to university, I guess studied for a couple of years, how did that mm. match up with your expectations of, I guess, the social aspect of it, number one, but two, mm. the intellectual uh, pursuit of knowledge and what life was that you really want to see? Yeah, that's a very good question. Um, in terms of how, first answer from the study perspective, I suppose. Well, because I, in high school, I was so focused on the science. Um, the biological and physical science of things. I've actually never studied psychology or philosophy before at high school. So as I was completely jumping in blind, took a leap of faith and hopefully it will turn out for the best. So from a study perspective, I personally didn't, ex I didn't expect anything just because I didn't have any prior conceptions of what psychology and study and philosophy would like. Or perhaps I thought psychology would involve a lot of talking people's um, it, difficulties out but it turned out to have a lot more statistics than I had imagined which, which I felt it was fine so from a study perspective because I think from a kind of a unique position where I came into uni studying the courses I chose to I didn't have any ideas that could have influenced me apart from just saying naive ideas of what psychology and philosophy are like um, the first one being talk your feelings out and the second one being angsty and existential crises but apart from that I took it as it came to me, which I which I think was helpful in terms of expect, uh, management, managing my expectations during my studies. And from a social aspect, I was really looking forward to uni because I think um, at that time, there there's a really good time to explore potential interests that you just can't didn't do at, um, at high school and to further develop interests that's already there. So um, I joined... One of the one of my highlights of my uni life was joining different clubs and societies. Um, so I, one of them was the biomedical students orchestra, 
Um, so I'm a violinist, played for Toronto High School, and I was able to continue that through uni, which is really exciting. And through uni, I was also able to explore other things I haven't really explored before, like faith through the Christian Union at uni as well. So I think it's a really great opportunity, and I really enjoyed it. Made lifelong friends who I'm still in contact now um, through both orchestra and the Christian group, yeah, at uni. Yeah, that, that's really good. And I think um, how you complemented what you want to explore through two ways, one through the academic route, but one also through that, as you said, the university culture, which is really, really important because you stay a friend of these people who could be your colleagues, could be your friends, could be uh, all sorts of things and, and listening here as well. Um, Brandon, you mentioned earlier, um, and you just mentioned just then, you studied double degree in psychology and philosophy, but you always had a long-standing passion for healthcare. And I guess there is some overlap between, I guess, your traditional healthcare and your psychology but did you find it hard to balance those I wouldn't say competing but those different interests throughout university a good question Kevin yeah I I did think about that as I because my interest as you say is definitely in healthcare and providing better health for people around and then in the psychology world it can be very theoretical and a lot of it I I a lot of it can be not directly related to practice, the practice of psychology in improving people's mental health. So I did find that more, sometimes mm, a bit distant, those to marry those two concepts up. For me, what I would, one of the things I was particularly interested in was um, clinical psychology, which was based, which was really focused on um, the the. Uh, the development, diagnoses, and treatment of mental illness. Um, so for a few units there, and for, for some of my own, own personal research interests, I'm really interested in uh, basically going delving into the background and development of those illnesses to find better treatments. As, however, as I say that, I went into the course um, really interested in the practice of being a clinician. But as I went through my course, my, my own interest and appreciation for the discipline also shifted. I think I grew more, more broader. I, I think I grew broader because through a few of the internships that I did, they were mostly research internships. And I grew more and more aware, I suppose, of the importance of the research part which is more distant to the practice part, but the power in the research to inform the practice. So as I studied through my psychology degree and got through the higher year levels, my interest grew broader. I, from a, from a first year clinical practice perspective, interest, I grew to more have a research interest as well. And then now, I suppose, or maybe preempting some of the questions you may be asking Kevin, um, as I now I work in the government, which regulates the, uh, which have a big role in regulating the sector, I also have an interest now in seeing how the sector is funded, developed, and regulated as well. That, yeah, that journey to me is quite clear when you said, you know, when you first came in, you're interested in content and you go into research side of things and practice, all the practice side of things and the research side of things and now the regulation side of things. And it's really that circle of life where, you know, you've had the chance to explore every section. And as you said, your interests develop and they forge and they mature over the years. So yeah. I guess... On that line of things, I guess, as you might know, moving to the Department of Health, do you still think um, they are able to explore or are you still interested in the initial passions you had when you started university? And, and where do you see your career moving forward 
um, in this space that you're interested in? Yeah, that's a very good question again, Kevin. Mm, how my own interests play into my current role in Department of Health? I think right now my role is kind of in a more research side of things in data analytics and it's not specifically on mental health it's in just health in general um and in terms i would personally um, i i would still love to become a clinician and my current my current boss at work my current director at work she works as a private practice psychologist on tuesdays and works at the department as a team director for the rest of the four days and that's something I would love to love to emulate as well I think she is her what what her career and current um what her career current uh, work settings are like is goals literal goals I want to be a psychologist and work in different areas at the same time um in terms of I think Right now, I'm developing great experience. I think government, working in government, especially federal government in the Department of Health, I think gives gave me a very wide perspective. On the on, I started off working in the mental health division, which is which basically is so tightly knit up in how the whole sector is funded and regulated and overseen. And from there, I just gained lots of insights into how, if you if you're a researcher, how the grant application works. If you are a um, psychologists and uh, how the whole sector is funded, what the governmental priorities are like in terms of funding, um, in terms of regulating the sector, what the and how to to think from a perspective that is not just a clinician, but also thinking from a perspective of what the government thinks and trying to understanding how you fit in within um, within the governmental frame of mind, I suppose, which is important because a lot because for these healthcare, a lot of it is government funded. I would still like to move to clinical psychology as a clinician at some point, like a, in, in some sort of a private practice. Um, but being a greedy person that I am, I also want to become a researcher in academia. Um, I think one of the best blessings I think of having moved, maybe what some people would say, well, what some people would see as a um, sidewalk or a um, distraction from my goals to the Department of Health in the Dalit Analytics area, I think one of the biggest blessings is that learning new ways, new data, analytic methods. Traditional psychology that I've been taught in at uni is very traditionally statistics, but in the data analytics area, I'm able to involve a lot more novel methods like machine learning and building AI algorithms um, to, for analyzing big data. And I'm hoping that I can take the skills I learned here back into a psychology field which at least when I went to uni, my undergrads, very traditional statistics. And I would want, really want to apply these new methods and see what really new insights I can draw from them and for them to inform practice as well. So at some point, I would like to go back to doing honours and do a professional doctorate in psychology which makes me both a researcher and a clinician. But yes, that's, that's the goal. I would like to do that, but we'll see whether that happens or not. Yeah, that, that's actually really fascinating how even moving forward, your interest is still there and you're, and you're thinking about going back to them. But I totally agree with you what you said, which is they, they co-inform each other and they coexist with each other in terms of research, in terms of practicalities, in terms of what you actually do with the job. And it's really great to hear that you really want to give back and teach your dynamics because it's really interesting when you think that university is the one that gives you all the cutting edge tools when you go to work, you can do it. But when you go yeah. and learn, you're realizing that there's so much the university yeah. can teach it's graduates moving forward, regardless of the data analytics or medicine or psychology. And um, yes, I also wish you best of luck. Hopefully you're about to 
pursue the same path to team director because that sounds like it would be <laughs> really interesting in terms of exploring the interests that you want to go through. Um, mm-hmm. Brent, I've got one last question for you, and this is mainly for our listeners who uh, could be looking into any scholarships or schemes at the university. Mm-hmm. During your university years, were there any programs or schemes or scholarships that you would recommend our listeners look into? Yeah. Um, personally, I... I am myself and not too, I am not haven't been a recipient of a scholarship um, or at least scholarships that are um, the way you apply for it. Um, the scholarships I have been aware, unfortunately, um, require students to be uh, to be very high academically achieving. So one of the scholarships that are available at University of Melbourne is, as most people know, would be the Chancellor Scholarship. So that requires um, that's awarded to people who achieve an ATAR of 99.9 or above, um, which is a very stringent criteria. I myself am not a recipient of one. Um, I know there are people who are. However, I also know at the university, there are a, depending on the faculty, a lot of these scholarships are faculty-based. So depending if you're at University of Melbourne, there are a few faculties like Faculty of Science, Faculty of um, Business and Economics, Faculty of Arts. Within each of those faculties, you, there is their website, each contains a scholarship page where um, they outline the kind of scholarships that are awarded to students um, who fall under certain eligibility criteria. So there are, uh, there are some scholarships uh, award, um, award students based on um, their regionality. So if a student comes from a regional area or they also award scholarships to people who are from certain backgrounds, cultural backgrounds as well, especially for um, relating to languages. Um, I also know that, uh, yeah, there are a few other scholarships around that are more general by the university. Um, that's not faculty-based, but um, they generally can be harder to find. Um, if any doubt, there is a... Um, Psychology, there is a scholarship page at the university website, and people, uh, university hotline is also, I think, will also very, offer very helpful information as well. In terms of um, other scholarships like exchange, I know there are lots of scholarship available, especially for um, certain disciplines, again, in languages, because that's from a faculty of arts, I'm the most familiar with that. So there are also other scholarship opportunities in terms of doing exchanges to other countries and other universities as well. Thank you, Brandon. Yeah, it seems like it's a little bit of a maze when navigating it, but it's definitely out there. And hopefully those can go out and do a quick Google search or on the university website. Or as you said, faculty-based and school-based scholarships are really important as well. Mm. Well, Brandon, thank you so much for answering the questions so far. I'm just going to pass it to Alice, who will explore a little bit further your professional journey so far. Hey, Brandon. Like Kevin said, thank you so much for answering our questions so far. It's been really interesting um, listening to your journey. Before you explore like the professional side of things, I actually wanted to jump back into uni. Mm. So when Kevin asked you about student clubs that you're involved in, you, we see that you have been involved in the Biomedicine Orchestra and the mm. Christian Union. Mm. We were actually pretty curious on why um, you didn't decide to do like a discipline specific um, society or club. Yeah, that's a very good question. Um, I, I personally, I have a lot of, in, I have some sort of really weird interest. I would have liked, also like to join. I'd have liked to join the board games club as well. I'd like to have joined um, the uh, my faculty specific club. I would really have liked to join the philosophy club at uni. Um, I think for me, I think for, well, for me, what's important is um, quality over quantity. I think part of the biggest 
biggest like advantage of blessing over a club is that if you really invest into it, you really get to know the people there and you really develop really quality friendships. Um, and to me, as a because I'm I think I think in general I'm more introverted than extroverted. As a general rule, I prefer to have um, I'm I'm satisfied with fewer friends, but um, you know, have a deeper relationships with them. And at uni, um, people have different commitments and um, also working part-time outside uni. So I could really want to choose a few that I can focus on. And those two are the ones where I've decided to really invest my time and eventually also took up some leadership roles in the um, clubs as well. Yeah, so that's why only out of everything of interest, I managed to narrow it down to two. I think, again, it comes back to, you know, managing your, ex your expectations and what you can reasonably manage in your time. And I think it's important not to do things bitterly. It's important to enjoy the things you do. So I could only take on less time, I found less clubs. So that's the two I joined and not a faculty one. Yeah, definitely. Um, I really like it how you said that you wanted to invest in like a very like few number of clubs that you're really interested in and go yeah. really deep into those clubs. Um, so now going to um, talking about like internships during university. So you've mentioned that you've done some research internships. Mm. Can you just tell us the ones that you've done that our audiences might be interested in and how you found out about those opportunities? Yeah, no problem. So I ended up doing two, both related to psychology. Um, I was really motivated to find some sort of intern experience because in the psychology field, um, for later applications to further study, that's what they really value in your application. Um, so the first one I found was in a study called the Bugs and Brain Study. It's a research group um, at the Melbourne Neuropsychiatric Centre, um, which is also affiliated with the Melbourne University. So that one... So just a brief overview of it is basically a study looking at the relationships between gut health and mental health. Because we know a lot of people who have irritable bowel syndrome um, or a lot of people who have mental illness, especially for depression and anxiety, also have irritable bowel syndrome. And there's lots of research right now in, in the links between bio biology and psychology, especially with gut biology. So that one I found um, very fortunately on the university notice board. So on the um, uni your personal university portal, there are notices that a lot of random people can post. And I saw on one day saying, looking for a research interns, please email this if you're interested along with your CV. And that's what I did. So I emailed the what turned out to be one of the um, PhD students, my expressing my interest, the same bit of why and uh, my background, I'm a second year psychology student and sending a copy of my CV. I didn't hear back for two weeks. I thought, oh, probably ghosted, they didn't want me. But then they gave me an interview and I, it was just a very casual conversation, basically trying to say what my interests are and they let me in. So that's how I found it. Um, and for my second one, I actually did a subject at university called arts internship. It was a credited subject. So it actually took one of my subject spaces. However, they didn't, although it says arts internship, you still have to source the internship yourself so that it don't actually give you one for free. Unfortunately, I would have liked that. Um, so there, I knew a friend in psychology, my psychology course, who was also working at this other psychology research clinic. She is about to leave and she said, ah, oh, that her supervisor is looking for new people to join. And she just encouraged me just to send in an email and ask him if they're looking for new people. 
And I think that's one of the things that it's more scary to do, kind of a cold email, but sometimes can turn out very valuable results. So I end up cold emailing them saying, hey, I'm a psychology student. I would love to get some experience working with you, send through a copy of my CV. And yeah, they gave me a chance to um, meet with me, have a brief chat, and they onboarded me to the system. And I started working with them one day a week. And very fortunately, I was able to publish a paper with them. Um, so they invited me to be a co-author and we, um, I contributed to a section of that paper and yeah some very valuable experience out of which I didn't turn out and opportunities which I didn't to, um, expect to be offered to which turned out from those internship experiences. Wow yeah it sounds like um, you've been like really proactive in finding these research experiences and I'm really happy that they turn out really well for you. Mm. I wanted to ask you a bit more about what you did during these like research experiences mm. so what sort of tasks did you have to complete and what sort of skills do you think you brought in from your degree? And what sort of skills do you think you got out of doing these research experiences? Mm, good question. Yeah, so for, I suppose I'll just, I'll talk about both my experiences as a whole. Um, so what I did was a lot of, um, what I now realise to be a lot of classic research assistant work. So it's quite, it's basically that you're a, you're a hired gun and you do whatever is required of the um, of the research needs, essentially. So it can be quite wide ranging from calling up participants um, to brief them for our research overview and to follow up with them. There's a lot of follow up in psychology research, I realized. There can be a lot of data entry where um, with a few response, you um, during you maybe interviewing a participant and during interview, you take notes and then later on, you enter your results into a database um, for in order for data analysis to happen. There can be a lot of admin jobs as well, like filing things, um, picking, um, doing photocopies. There are sometimes more exciting things where you do the real meaty and juicy part of the research. So, um, depending on what you do. I did clinical interviews, which is a intensive three hour interview, which goes through a, a, a participant's whole entire mental health history. And some other really interesting clinical interviews that I did as part of my psychology internships. In terms of what I brought in, there were definitely some course knowledge that mattered. For example, when I was doing uh, involved in the when, when I was listening in and preparing um, and helping out with the clinical interviews, a lot of the diagnostic criteria for some sort of mental illnesses was taught during my um, during my course, and for that it just made filing and grasping the flow of the interview a lot easier because I had that content knowledge, and a lot of the data entry because I did statistics um, through my statistics course I knew what they were for, so it made it a lot more purposeful and it made a boring job very. It gave a boring, what would be a boring job, a lot of purpose, because I know that I have to concentrate right now, because what I enter now, if I enter wrong, it will severely influence the outcome of the analysis afterwards. So having these con course content knowledge was really helpful in me, giving me a sense of purpose and direction in knowing the rationale behind the steps that I, um, that I performed at, during my internship. But definitely uh, what I got out of it was a lot more than my course. I think it gave me, a, I think the most valuable thing of an internship is that it gives you a, a realistic expectation of what the field would be like. You would think that, um, I originally thought research would be like, ah, oh, you, you send out a survey in research and you sit back, wait for the results to come in, 
and you do some cool coding and analyze results and bam, you have a published paper. But then I realized that 70% of the time is data collection. <laughs> There's so much following up involved. There's so much cold phone calls involved where you call someone you've never chatted to before and they don't know who you are unless you explain yourself to them and you will like something you would really like them to do this survey that you sent to them a month ago that they haven't had a look at so in terms of um, a lot of skills I gained were I think perseverance and a good work ethic no matter do all the things that required with you even when boring and the courage especially to make phone calls I think the biggest skill I got out of those communication skills between the research team and especially to strangers um, and other stakeholders who you've never talked to or met in person before. So communication skills was one of the big, big things right now that I learned through my internships and right now that I use for work daily. Yeah, wow. It sounds like you've gotten out of the research experience lots of really useful skills and a really realistic perspective of what research is like. Mm. Um, and that's really good because it could be quite relevant to what you're doing now, I'm guessing. So going to what you're doing right now. So you've mentioned that you, um, so you're in the Department of Health and you mentioned mm. that you did the grad program last year and then you kind mm. of stayed on. I just wanted to ask you a bit more about the grad program that you did last year at the Department of Health. Mm. Uh, what sort of things did you do there and the rotations that you've been on in that program? Yeah, very happy to share. So the grad program um because it's the federal um, department of health most people relocate to canberra so i moved from uh, melbourne to canberra um, but the move isn't difficult itself because um, the department gives you relocation assistance so all your move is paid for and they give you two weeks of temporary accommodation at a hotel um, in a service apartment so it's really easy i think to move up um, in terms of what i did so just a broad overview it's a at least for the Department of Health, it's a 10-month program from, from um, February to December. So it's a full-time paid position. So you get paid a full-time paid salary. Um, but it's, everything's available on, on the website. So we're advertised. The um, recruiter usually opens around March. So I think it should be around open or about to open right now, actually. So with the grad program, I there were three. I was rotated to three different teams um, through my program. So around four months, then two, three month rotations. I started off in mental health division. Then went to the data analytics um, team. Then finally end up in something called the AHPPC secretariat, which is I'll explain more later. So in the mental health division, I was involved in digital mental health. So think how beyond blue lifeline black doc institute saying how they are funded well that team that i worked in i was one of the um funding officers responsible for in order basically to execute all the funding for those for those organizations so from there i learned a lot about not just about how the mental health workforce um, is like but also specifically in the digital space so some of the current priorities in digital mental health especially through COVID, because people um, with COVID through the pandemic, uh, access to face-to-face -face, uh, mental health services have become more difficult. So it has really been a prominent increase, um, especially to the access to online mental health services, like Beyond Blue and things like This Way Up, which is online uh, mental health cognitive behavioral treatments, which offers online, uh, online treatments. 
And also throughout the pandemic, there's been a lot more need for um, crisis services like Lifeline and Kids Helpline. And so um, in that team, I was um, involved in executing a lot of the grants as well as um, providing policy input for upcoming funding for digital mental health services in the federal budget. So I think there are quite a few a few billion invested in mental health. And part of that, um, I think around, it's in the budget papers last year, around 200 million of the funding allocated to digital mental health services. I was involved in basically involved in drafting the costings and providing the policy input to advise that funding through the federal, federal budget. So that was really interesting to see um, how the mental, what the mental health space up, uh, is like and especially what the current governmental agendas for the mental health um, field is like, and especially in the digital space. But I was also exposed to the wider um, mental health services space just because I was involved in the mental health division um, as a whole. So my first rotation, so from really from a policy and funding and a program perspective, um, then I moved into data analytics, <laughs> where there was a lot of COVID <laughs> data analytics. So in my team there, for around three months, I was working a lot with COVID vaccination data. So we have, a you know, in university, they often tell you in data, and if you do statistics, that you, you will never get the population data. You can only get a sample. That's why you use the sample to estimate the population. Well, in government, you just do have the population data. You do <laughs> through Medicare and whatnot. The government just has everybody's data. So everything that we, all the estimates that we generate aren't sample. They're just of the whole population. So through that team, I was look, we were looking at the um, COVID-19 vaccine uptake of very granular specific cohorts by linking big data sets together. And because in government, you have access to the data sets, so there's a real opportunity um, to use those privileged data sets to inform policy. So, for example, we looked at the um, vaccination uptake of people with mental health conditions, people um, who uh, ate or people who are ill, who work in aged care, etc., or very granular specific population cohorts. And it was very topical. I think it was, well, to quote unquote, sexy, because a lot of it you see is directly related to what is happening in the real world right now. So that was super rewarding. And yeah, and just and just really fed my, uh, my, my need for numbers. And it really, and you get to really see some interesting trends that are happening in the world out there through the data that you see that, yeah, other people may not have access to. And from there, we were able to use the data to inform people in the COVID-19 task force in terms of messaging. And right now we're kind of doing an evaluation and we can already see that it has their messaging has lifted vaccination uptake rates in some very specific population cohorts, which is really encouraging to see. And also to see how data can be used to inform policy at a ground level and be very effective in that. Um, and the last team I was involved is a team called the AHPPC Secretariat. So one of the funnest teams I've been in. So basically, um, the AHPPC is called the Australian Health Protection Principal Committee, and it's made up of the Chief Medical Officer and all the Chief, Chief Health Officers of the states and territories. So there, I got to see adjunct professor Brett Sutton in a video call. And, and it's a, 
he threw, when I was in Melbourne in 2020, he was my celebrity crush. And it was just super cool to see, um, yeah, people involved in how these high-level figures make decisions. You get to see all the states and territories, chief officers, and really high-level executives in the Department of Health interact. And you can see all their individual personalities come through. And you realize, wow, they are also just people like us. They are also have, you know, their disagreements, their agreements, time where they worked really well and really focused together in times where they had really different ideas of how things should work. And this just reflects like any other big group setting. And from there, um, it were basically the team discussed the future of Australia's response to all kinds of health situations. I can't go into much detail, but it was um, very interesting to see how very high level decisions are made decisions that guide the Australia's futures are made, how those decisions are made, and how those decisions are implemented. And, and you get to see, because you're there in the room where it happens, you get to see those decisions being made before the general public knows about it. And you can, it's really interesting to then you as a person who have that privileged knowledge to observe how, how the transition happens. And in a secretariat, it's mainly a supporting role. You can basically think of a, a secretary is basically a group of secretaries. Instead of having one secretary, which helps the person, there's a group of people helping the committee to run smoothly. So a lot of sending out agenda papers, taking notes through meetings. The type of work is more admin slash procedural, but the insights it gives you into high-level exec and governmental decision-making, I think is invaluable. And I think it's given me a, a very good insight into how government, especially high-level government decisions are made. Wow, that is so cool. You know, like your experience during the three rotations and the things that you got to see, I think it is amazing because all of these things, like they impact everyone. Like it seems really, really purposeful. I wanted to kind of jump forwards towards, I guess, the future. So you've mentioned that one of your goals is to become a clinical psychologist. Mm. You've mentioned how your background in research, as well as your background in like your grad program has really given you probably a very unique perspective towards psychology as a field from like a macro level. Mm. We were actually wondering, do you think your degree in like philosophy, um, how does that impact you in your future work, perhaps as like a clinical psychologist? Yeah. Definitely a very interesting question that I should also thought about lots myself. Um, in terms of philosophy, I think the biggest the biggest learning I got from philosophy is an appreciation of the different ideas and the different perspectives that people have on life. I think it's given me an openness and non-judgmental uh, appreciation of whatever idea that's out there. And I and to them, it's how they personally are significant to people. I think from the perspective of philosophy, it's also given me an appreciation of the importance of personal meaning in achieving a the good life, I, I suppose. And it's given me a framework to think through multiple, in, to think through ethics. Because as a clinician, ethics is important. It's something that you must abide by. That's your code of practice. And so and philosophy has given me a helpful framework of when there are difficult ethical things to do, I can think about it from a philosophical framework as well as a framework from um, what, I, what I'm taught in professional practice in psychology. So I find that helpful. And 
I, in terms of informing my future practice, there is certain branches of psychology, which is called existential counseling or existential psychology, which really approaches uh, a person's well-being from a more philosophical um, point of view. And I think for me at that point, when I was in, reflecting back when I was in high school, a lot of the um, mental health struggles and a lot of the struggles in my personal life were indeed from that philosophical perspective, what the meaning of life is from a, these broad existential philosophical questions. And I think from as a, as a clinician, I myself would like to also be able to offer um, counselling and treatment from that perspective as well, from a broader perspective. And I think having done philosophy is maybe makes me feel more confident tackling things um, or topics or conversations that are more philosophical and grander and more existential. And I hope that by have by being more comfortable with that, it will help me to be a clinician that's more, you know, more able to appreciate a a client's whole of life experience. I'm sure that I'll be still be able to do that and learn that from professional psychology. But I think that um, also having also studied philosophy, it has also trained my own personal life, personally to have a great appreciation for a person's whole of life and whole life journey. And yeah, where they are coming from, from their own philosophical and exist, existential standing. That's very interesting. I personally have never thought that existential psychology is a field within clinical psychology. I actually wanted to ask you a question from, so earlier on, you were saying that part of the reason you came into philosophy is because you were questioning like the meaning of life in high school and that, you know, studying philosophy can like add more insights into that. I am so I don't want to ask you about what you think the meaning of life is right now. So instead, (laughs) I'm going to ask you, how do you think your view of the meaning of life has changed since high school? So from high school until after you've studied philosophy? Yeah, yeah. that's a very good question. Uh, Well, I think part of the struggle and reason why I studied philosophy was I didn't know what the meaning was. I, I feel like there must be some sort of a meaning but I don't know what it is. Essentially, in a nutshell of what I felt during high school was, oh, I'm going to die. The world's going to die. My children's going to die. What's the point? So very angsty, very, very uh, nihilist. But I nevertheless have the will to keep living on. And why is that? Then there must be some sort of meaning behind my will to keep living on despite the seemingly meaninglessness of the world. That means there must be some meaning. Then what is it? someone to study philosophy let's find out because that in high school read lots of existential literature like albert camus jean-paul sartre so very 20th century existentialist literature really interested in nietzsche classic philosophy kid um i think through through my through uni through philosophy i've kind of understood that there is not one singular meaning of life i think I think my appreciation of in high school, I was really fixed. What what is it? What is what is it? It being singular, but through philosophy, I and through maturity as well. As I grow older, through uni experience, through exploring other philosophy, psychology, and through exploring faith, I found that there is not one the meaning of life that is true for all time for everyone. I think meaning is intrinsically personal, and in that at some point everybody will. Even say, 
you a person was prescribed a meaning say a person if a person was brought up say in a religious background and all through their life they were told that their their religious um what their religious teachings is their meaning i think at some point it doesn't become their meaning until they personally choose to then adopt it so as i think for everybody meaning us is something is intrinsically personal and that people will have to arrive at some point for them for themselves even if, if they've been brought up in a religious or non-religious background because it is a conscious choice to adopt something and to call it your own so i think from that perspective i don't think there's one singular the meaning of life but what it can be looks different to other people i know it's very wishy-washy and i still haven't really explained what meaning is but I think meaning is what gives value to your life, what makes sense to you, what gives you a coherence whole of not just your own, but of humanity's past, present and future. Something that integrates all of that story, that grand story for a person personally. Sure, if a person genuinely arrives that there is no meaning, then sure, that is it. The meaning is there is no meaning for them. For me, I've fallen in the position where it is somewhat ex somewhat existentialist and Christian, a Christian existentialist position. And that's what I found to be my meaning. And yeah, for uni, what taught me is that there is no singular one meaning of life. And even if you were brought up having a meaning assigned to you, at some point, you have to adopt, you have to call that your own. And until you call something your own, yeah, that nothing is really set in for you. That's kind of what I described. And it looks different for everybody, what that looks like. So not from at high school, I thought, what is the meaning of life at uni? And through maturity, I began to realize that kind of frame of, frame of thinking might in fact not be most accurate. After all, there's not the meaning of life, but many different meanings of life, which may look different for everyone. No, that's a really great answer. Because yeah, for me personally, like when... You know, when we throw around the term meaning of life, I think my emphasis tends to be on the word life, but I've never really put emphasis on the word meaning. So it's really, really interesting how like the, even the word meaning has so many like explorations attached to it and there could be yeah, multiple meanings. I never thought about it that way. So I thought that was really interesting. So we're going to move on to the next section of our podcast, um, mm. which is asking abstract questions, not that we've not been there already. <laughs> yeah. So to begin with, the first abstract question that we ask everyone is um, about identity. Mm. So for many of us, identity is made up of a lot of components, like well, mm. what we do for work, the relationships we have, and what our hobbies and values are. Mm. So for yourself, what do you think informs your identity the most? And especially because we're asking, we're a podcast about work and career. Mm. How much do you think yep, your work and your career contributes to your like sense of identity? Yeah, that's a very good question. It's something I think about a lot. So I really appreciate you asking that question, Alice. Um, so for in terms of personal identity, I personally have a very strong principle of not sacrificing my personal relationships and my personal uh, life for work. I think throughout uni, there are sometimes I have made that mistake where I studied, where I sacrificed my personal life for study, and I, I do I do regret them. And I wished had I had chosen, I would have chosen differently. Now, I think for me, that's why I act. I personally actively choose to prioritize my personal and my personal relationships over my work. So in terms of how I would, what's how I most 
firmly identify myself and you know describe as my identity is well i think being a christian is a big, big part of my identity i attend church i do a lot of church stuff during the week as well and i think that's where i find a lot of my community and my own meaning i'm also asian i think uh, especially chinese i think i find a lot of i meaning in that i think when i was in high school i kind of you know, don't want to embrace my culture, you know, because I, I think I was a bit more afraid um, to appear different from everybody else. But I think I now know it's a real good strength of me I can leverage because it offers me perspectives that others may not have, may not know. And I also think of myself as, you know, another thing I identify, then the third identity I think would be around work. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm a data analyst. I am, have a background in psychology. I work, I'm a public servant. I work for the federal government and I serve the public. And out of these three, it's, I think it's very, very clearly tiered in terms of my identity, how I think for myself in terms of my priorities. Um, I think it's helpful for me because I think it grounds me. So I don't lose sight of what's most important to me. So that's why I have a tiered. I'm first and foremost, um, someone of faith, someone of the Christian faith, then I'm someone of my cultural background, and then I'm someone of my, my um, someone who, on my role as public servant, data analyst comes third, and in my cultural background, that also relates to um, my family as well, how I relate to my family, how relatives, and yeah, and my other other cultural groups that I'm involved in, as well. I love the differentiation between the th- the three different groups, and I think that. Yeah, it seems like you have a really clear idea of who you are and what contributes to your identity. Um, the second question that I wanted to ask in this like abstract read uh, section, so you've mentioned sacrifices and you've mentioned the things that you're not willing to sacrifice. Mm. But what do you think in terms of like the things that you prioritize? What what was the thing that you think that you thought you had to sacrifice um, that was the most important to you to get to where you are right now? I think part of the things to sacrifice, especially right now having been now working in Department of Health in Canberra is comfort and familiarity. Because I because at the end of 2020, where I was offered the job at the Department of Health, I was also had another few another job offer at my psychology clinic where they offered to hire me as a research assistant. And that was, you know, juicy, juicy offer because I thought, oh, I'll gain practical experience. I'll be able to write papers with them. I'll be able to publish. I'll be able to get in psychology and become a psychologist, which was super hype for me. But then I realized that my marks are there. I can, I already graduated from a uni. I can, my undergrad at least, my marks are there. I can always come back to it. They last a lifetime. But he, the job offer at Department of Health, it's competitive. I'm, I can't guarantee I'll get in again the next year. Well, from frame this way, well, certainly the the unemotional choice then would be to choose Department of Health. I'll be in a full time pay position. I'm not guaranteed. My marks will always. I can always return to psychology whenever I want. So I should take the Department of Health. But it wasn't an easy decision because that means I'll be leaving comfort behind, the familiarity of Melbourne, the years of friendship that I've built up, built up that I really, really will miss. So I think I have sacrificed the sense of familiarity. Some relationships, not all, some has gotten stronger, but I have definitely sacrificed some relationships where I have gotten out of touch with people and familiarity. But I, I, I definitely do prioritise relationships. However, this one 
is this one, I think it would have been wrong if I didn't choose to come to Canberra and have sacrificed comfort in some relationships. Because I think as people grow older, especially when people hit their, I'm 23, I think, which is not very old, I th- but I do think as people hit 20, you know, their mid-20s and late-20s and their 30s, people do move away for work. And it becomes just natural that you will say goodbye to friends and sometimes close friends. And when, when, these, when opportunities come to us, where, where we had the opportunity and other people didn't have the opportunity, we can't always go with comfort, I think. In order for a person to grow, we must step outside our comfort zones and to take a leap into the unknown. I don't know anybody in Canberra, zero. And so coming here was a tough decision and I sacrificed a lot of the, and I know that Melbourne being a research assistant studying honours would just be, you know, would just be a good, a good decision for me. I would not have regretted either way. But coming to Canberra, I think, would not just grow me in my career, but also as a person in maturity as well, in terms of moving to a new city, developing new relationships, facing unknown, being purely independent, living outside of home, fending for myself, literally, because there's nobody else in the city that I know. And that has been a maturing experience. And I don't regret it for a single moment. Sometimes sacrificing comfort some relationships I would definitely not sacrifice all the relationships that's why I'm trying I do try and have invested significant efforts keeping touch with old friends after this podcast I will be calling a friend who I call fortnightly and on Tuesday nights I call a friend weeknight weekly and for them I'm still maintaining relationships so I still haven't lost my priority of, of maintaining relationships the key crucial relationships I like to maintain so d- despite the sacrifice I think I have still successfully managed to keep my eyes set on the priorities in life that I would not like to lose as well. But I do acknowledge this. There will be sacrifices to get to where you want to be and to grow and to mature out of outside of your comfort zone. Thank you so much for like, you know, acknowledging that there are sacrifices in, you know, making decisions, but you know, it, it probably is really worth it at the end informed by your priorities. And I also think that, you know, sometimes like leaving a place uh, because you have to, um, those relationships that you've had in the place prior perhaps some of those people might even encourage you to go out of your comfort zone like they Mm. might even pursue your dreams okay so um thank you for answering the questions that i was asking i'm now going to pass the mic back to kevin to ask our last few questions hey brand thank you again for answering those and they're really interesting the way that you think about them hopefully the next couple of questions will probe your philosophical mind a little bit more great um so, Brandon, the question I have for you next is if social structures that we're all familiar with, money, status, mm-hmm. all that, was not in consideration, mm-hmm. what would be your blue sky project or your blue sky career that you would pursue? <laughs> Just had the same conversation with somebody yesterday. Uh, well, 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 too many things. I, hmm, this was said extremely nerdy. Oh, no. Well, oh well. For the benefit of all, I will publicly expose myself on this public forum. I would love to do video game developing. I would love to be an artist. I'd love to be do video game developing, writing high fantasy novels and developing video games. I think, well, unfortunately, video game time is a bit constrained for me in my personal life at the moment. But yes, I think video game is great. I think... From a philosophical perspective, it's fiction. But fiction 
gives tells us some what's important to us and fiction gives us a way to cope with the world it gives it teaches us how to cope with the world without actually exposing us to what's in the fictional world so through fiction i can live what it's like to live in a dystopia without actually living in a dystopia itself you know i study a bit of philosophy fiction that's something really interesting side note but video game developing yes definitely yes when in because i've played video games like since i was four and i've just always been a big fan of it and i have a very active imagination whenever i'm bored on a train i just think of oh what video game would i develop i'll, I'll have a game mechanic like this I will have a world like this. The world will be structured like this. And this is a system of the magic that happens in that world. And this is a condition for that magic to trigger and happen. So basically, I basically I would love to develop, create worlds, create video game worlds, create worlds in writings. One of my favorite fantasy authors, Brandon Sanderson, is someone I respect very highly just because a lot of his fantasy novels the world is very clearly constructed everything in the world makes sense and has a logical mechanism in the world magic in the world doesn't just happen just because but are very reified and outlined and consolidated with a complete and whole system of magic in that world and i would just love to be able to create these kinds of worlds for people to enjoy and to live in and to entertain people a bit nerdy, but if that's what I want to do, that if I if I can do whatever I want without being constrained by any other factors, that's what I do. So much fun. Wouldn't even be a job to play another meta video game, a video game making video games. Essentially, that job would be. No, one hundred percent. I think I think, and I think over the years, video like they used to have a bad reputation. You know, kids <laughs> are playing it, reducing academic scores. But I think over yeah. the years, they've become educational, and people are realizing that video games, as you said. Is a conduit to another world that you can think about different things that you can construct creativity and you can mm. explore what you really want to explore that you can't explore potentially in society. Mm. So I think you're really right. I think with the metaverse hopefully coming up soon, um, a lot of these things will exponentially grow in their importance in all sorts of industries, defense, education, health. It's not just yeah. recreational anymore. Um, yes. So that's really interesting you bring that up because I think a lot of people are thinking the same. But as you mm. said, there's a lot of other social structures that constrain them from pursuing that. Mm. Yes. Uh, Brent, I've got next question, a little bit similar to career, but I guess go a little bit deeper. So there, there are many jobs in the world that are there as a solution to a problem, or you provide mm. a service to solve a problem. Mm. If you could help people with any problem they're facing, any problem at all, what sort of problem would you like to help out with? This could be anything from health, could be to relationships, mm. could be finances, could be anything. What would you think you'll pursue? Mm. Yeah, Def um, for me, the one would definitely be helping people sort out their existence in life. I know this sounds, this sounds pretty grand. Um, I think part of a big part of my own personal uh, philosophy is that I'll really, I think for me personally, the most important thing in life is finding meaning. There's a book called A Man's Search for Meaning by a um, psych Jewish psychiatrist called Viktor Frankl, and that book has influenced me a lot. Um, basically, he was a Jewish psychiatrist who survived the concentration camps through um, World War II, and he wrote in that book, Man's Search for Meaning, about what helped people survive, what was the reason that people survived, and that he learned that it wasn't 
a will to power, not the pursuit of power or the pursuit of sex or reproduction that helped people survive, but it was a will to meaning. It was the people who had meaning survived, who found meaning in their suffering survived, but the people who didn't, didn't, found meaning didn't. And that book combined with my own personal, you know, experiences and philosophy and faith has really put me in my listen to my understanding of life that me finding meaning is one of the most important should is one of the primary human aims for me in, to live a good life and and around the world i do see lots of people when i was at uni i have many had many you know conversations with people and i do see many people who are struggling to find direction because in high school the direction is there for us maybe it's our parents goal maybe it's just getting through year 12 or maybe it's just getting through school. But I think at some point, meaning cannot lose its prescription from other sources and become something that we have to find for ourselves. And that's something, if there's something you know, I can help people with, I would love to help people find their place in the world through combination of psychology and philosophy. I would love to help people explore with people what their meaning is and to help people find their place existentially in the world. That's what I want to do. That's really, really inspiring. And I think given the world gives you so many opportunities, it can sometimes be overwhelming. It can be confusing. And I'm sure for a lot of listeners who are in, in university, in school, or early in their career, it's really hard to find your feet. And mm-hmm. you think you go into this defined channel. If you do this degree, you should only be doing things in this degree. But it's so much more than professional life. As Alice said, you know, identity is personal, professional, spiritual. It's very holistic. Mm-hmm. So that's really I guess humanitarian of you wanting to offer that service as well because it's so highly personalized and tailored to each mm. person. You will need to get to know who you're talking to rather than giving a one size fits all. You should do this, this, and this. Mm. Yeah. Um, a couple more questions, Bren. Uh, mm-hmm. This one is an analogy. It's a bit long, so let me know if you want me to repeat anything. So the question is effectively whether you're a laser or a light bulb. So yeah. a laser being, you know, a concentrated light source with a high energy impact on a small area. A light bulb being more diffuse yet provides a broader impact or broader light coverage. The analogy being, do you prefer to focus your effort and time on a task that can impact a few people really, really strongly or many people briefly? That's a very good question. Well, I think, Kevin, your question there also kind of contrasts between, you know, what I currently do and what my goal of becoming a clinical psychologist because right now we're working in federal government there's no specific person that we deal with. All the policies that we do influence people at the population level, although you know, the personal impacts to each individual is overall quite dispersed. And you know, as a clinician, you have a significant impact on the clients that you see that you can you can quite literally change their life on how how people see things. Well, which what would I Kevin, would you, when you ask the question, light bulb, laser, do you mean what I currently am or what would I like to do? What would you like to do? What would I like to do? I think for me, uh, maybe hmm, maybe my public service friends who are hearing this, maybe you know, think I'm a traitor or whatnot. I, as a person who's more introverted and I, who really enjoys working personally with people, ideally, I will, I would like to say I want to do a mixture of both, sort of both clinical practice and research. But then I know, Kevin, you probably will like a choose either or answer. So if I'm forced to choose, I would choose probably to be a laser, laser beam, to work with fewer people because 
at some point we also recognize the limits of our own strengths that we can't change that we can't change the world there are people who can change the world very significant world leaders who can change the world but for mm, most people it's more we don't have the power this doesn't mean that we should abandon ambition and our our desire to change the world and i think that we should really keep that up but i think personally as a person who's more mm, introverted and who knows that the things that i want to do really value about finding helping a person find the existential place in the world is something deeply intrinsic personal I suppose because the work I what really enjoy is something intrinsically personal to another person or a client. It naturally lends lends itself towards being more of the laser beam type of work. For example, the clinician clinical type of work. We influence people at a person level. We provide holistic, you know, services to a person. And don't under I don't think you know comparing the light bulb and laser beam. I think we should underestimate what a laser beam can do, which can have flow effects to a light bulb, because, well, we never know the things that we do and help a person can help at what that can enable them to do. It's not just the proximal, just the immediate effect we have, but also the potential for us to flow on to how influence how other people act. And if you bring it up, I, I think that concept's really important that we're talking about a laser beam and you think it just hits one person, but you're actually hitting a diamond or a crystal and, yeah. it, and it diffracts and reflects. And when you change this, for example, using an analogy, if you help one person find their place in the world, that's going to fall onto their family, every mm. single person they touch flying on their children, if they decide to have them. So you're really right. Yeah. Brian. I think um, this question really is to prompt the thinking, but at the end of the day, that don't think it's so narrow minded exactly as you mentioned. Mm. Um, well, Brandon, as we're wrapping up, and thank you so much for taking the time out, did you have yeah. any important lessons, any morals that you've learned over the years reading the philosophy books and the papers that you think would be important to share with us and our listeners? Mm. Yeah. I think if I have to share anything, I think just do. I think priority. I think through a personal combination of personal factors and whatnot, my own goal, my own personal priority is well personal relationships above all else whether that be family uh, friends or if you have children your children um i think those things are most important to me i think there at some point you are called to sacrifice things temporarily such as when i moved from melbourne to canberra and i think those sacrifices you know i lost friends and familiarity lost some friends and familiarity and i think at some points to some extent sacrifices to friends, family are justified, and that's okay to do. But I think at some point, it can be dangerous to sacrifice too much. To in, What you think to be short-term sacrifices ends up being a habit. And that's why I think at the current moment, I'm so heavily prioritizing them, so I don't give myself a slippery slope and to go down and to give my... What's the, what's the saying called? Give an inch and take in something else, take a foot or something. So to be really clear in your priorities and to be very strict yourself on upholding them. If your priority is friends and family, then let that be your priority and stick to it. If your priority is career, then sure, then do that. But also the important part is to actually stick to your priorities. Don't let your priority be optional. So I think priority is everything. Everyone's got all these things happening in the world, but it's important to realize what's important to you. Um, and as you said, you give an inch and they'll take a while. Um, sort of. That's the same. 
<laughs> framing and stratifying your life um, to make sure what's important to you, you actually end up doing and you're not distracted by everything around you. Bren, thank you again so much for taking the time to be with us here on It's Not A Letter. Uh, for those who are listening, if you'd like to learn more about Bren and have any questions, please email us and stay tuned for our next episode.